So last week, or two weeks ago, I, or last week I guess, I told you uh, that two weeks ago, you were all a little blurry. Now I can't even see the buttons on my thing. Oh. There we go. So then last week I told you you weren't blurry. This week you're a bunch of blurry people again. Hopefully, you guys will figure that out, and I won't have to keep buying new glasses. <laughs> My eyes have been going wonky on me. So, Wednesday I had one prescription. Ah, oh, they're just reading glasses, so it's not that big of a deal. But Thursday I had a different prescription. What today is Sunday, obviously. So I'm working on another one. And... Someone was uh, not making fun of me, but telling me that I was getting old because on my iPad, which I used to read, I have it as big as I can possibly get. The eye test. Never meant more to me now than this week. I was there in January to see the doctor and had perfect eyes. I think I want my money back from that test. Here we are. Starting in, in Matthew chapter 14, we get uh, the story of John the Baptist, and John had spoken out against Herod um, because he had married his brother's wife, and so John was arrested. As a result, we just read John was, was beheaded. If we keep going in, in John chapter 14, we get to see that this leads uh, into some interesting stories, and John chapter 14 is an interesting, uh, interesting book, really, or uh, chapter. Uh, Jesus uh, then goes and, and feeds the 5,000. Imagine that. Think about that. That Jesus fed all of those uh, people. Now, I don't, I don't know what you think about the, the, the area of Galilee and, and how many people were there. You know, you think of uh, small towns. You think of uh, back in the day, people being so uh, isolated and separated and, and not being that that big of a place. But... Uh, some historians will say that there was probably uh, around 3 million people in that, in that whole area. And so when it says that the crowds followed Jesus, there was an opportunity for the crowds to be quite large, to be following Jesus. So, so here we get one where it talks about uh, the 5,000. Go into, into verse 15. It says, The evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish and looking to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So how many people were there? We know we say the feeding of the 5,000, but how many were there? More, right? Yeah, it, was, it would have been higher. So we talk about this idea of there being 5,000 men, but then... Women and children, it could have been much, much more. Here's this, this huge crowd, this, this large crowd. And Jesus, he, you know, he feeds them. He takes this, this small morsel and, and he, 
and he gives them what they need. The disciples wanted to send them away. Jesus says, why don't, you, why don't you feed them? We don't need to send them away. Feed them. It's interesting to think what his disciples, even his disciples must have thought. Looking at that horde of people and then looking down at the food that they had. I'm, I'm uh, quite confident that if we went into uh, our lunch for potluck and that there were five loaves and two fish, we would be scrounging around for more food. And well, there's not, there's not 5,000 people here. Pretty sure. Just think about what his disciples must have been thinking when he says, well, what, why don't you feed them? They don't need to go anywhere. They, we have enough. We can feed them here. And so they begin to feed them, and, and Jesus is blessed, and they begin to free, feed them, and then they go to pick up what is left. Now what his disciples must be thinking as they pick up just the leftovers. And how much is left? Basketfuls, right? Twelve basketfuls of broken pieces. God is amazing. You know, what Jesus was able to do. The people were there to hear Jesus. To see Jesus. To be a part. To know what he had to say. When our lives uh, are examined, when we look at who we are and what we're doing, and you know, it's it's titled the eye test this this morning, not simply because my eyes need testing, but because I think if we examine our lives and really uh, look at our lives and see what we're doing and how we're acting, do we have this this desire, this this ultimate desire to be sharing God? Do we look at ourselves as, as individuals who have a knowledge of the truth, have a knowledge or understanding of what the truth really is, and desire for the world around us to know that? To really know that, not only about us, but to actually know the truth that we can impart to them as well. Do we view ourselves as such? Is that what it means to you to be a Christian? In part, obviously, uh, in part is to be saved, to be a son of God, to have our sins washed away. But God calls us as such to be salt and light. There is no distinction between those two kinds of uh, coins or the two sides of that coin as a Christian. There's no distinction between being saved and being a child of God and doing what is right. And then all this other part where, you know, maybe we'll outreach a little. Maybe I'll tell my neighbor. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll share the gospel if it seems convenient. There's no distinction between those two things. That's what it is to be a Christian in the sharing of God. You know, the disciples wanted to send the people away. Jesus uh, says, no, let's, uh, let's have them stay here. Uh, Jesus often looked at the crowds, looked at individuals, looked at those who needed help with compassion. Compassion is a tricky thing, is it not? The call for us to be compassionate, the 
call for us to be loving, the call for us to care enough about our world, to care enough about those around us, to care enough about our enemies, to care enough about those who, who hate us, to care enough about those who mistreat us, to be nice to them, to love them, and to treat them properly and beyond. To love them the way that God loves us. Do you acknowledge and accept that God loves you? It's not a, not a trick question. I mean, honestly, do you acknowledge and accept that God loves you? That there is a depth of love that God provides that allows us to be in this now, this situation in which we find ourselves in life, in grace, in salvation, being redeemed because of God, because of his love for us. If we accept and acknowledge that, if we truly desire to live in that, then what is the evidence or proof that we do? Is it the name Christian that we carry on our backs? Is it, is it that what proves that we've accepted and, and acknowledged the love that God has for us? There are many who will call themselves Christian, won't, won't there be? There'll be many who say that they know the word of God, that are obedient to the word of God, and are not. So it's not just in a name, is it? How will they know that you are a Christian? How will they know that we are the church that God has called and ordained since the coming of Christ? If we do not live with love, with compassion. It is not a sidebar when it comes to being a Christian. The greatest two commands are what? To love the Lord your God. And you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. You love the Lord your God and then to love your neighbor, to love your neighbor as yourself, to love one another. And we are, called, we are called to this because God has loved us. God has had compassion on us. God has forgiven us. God has looked at us in our weakness, in our state of sinfulness, as enemies of his, and has had compassion on us. And so now we sit with that love, we sit with that salvation washing us clean, and we are called to that same compassion, to that same love. I don't know if this is easy all the time. I mean, there's no guarantee that life is going to be. There will be times when, when this is, is tested. When we'll have to make a choice to be loving, to be compassionate, when it seems like the opposite is maybe more natural. It's what we're called to. 
it really is who we are, who we should be, who we should desire to be. Jesus, if you go back into Matthew chapter 14, right after this, after the, the sharing and feeding, right after this, it says immediately, starting in verse 22, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the side. Well, he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. In the sharing of God, the understanding that sometimes there will be crowds, sometimes that there will be those around us that need help, sometimes there will be times where we have to encourage and share and give of ourselves, whether it is of our energy, of our time, of our talents, of all of those things, to really delve deep into who we are and to share that with others. Uh, I think there's an understanding that we have to have times of solitude and prayer in order to be able to share God. And, and there has to be some kind of balance with the two. Uh, we do not want to, to burn ourselves out and to say that we, we no longer have energy. Jesus often uh, took time to be alone. He took time to pray not at the sacrifice of sharing himself. I mean, he was there to help and to, and to share and to teach. And we have to be willing to do that as well. But we have to recharge. I, I, often, think of sun, I often think of Sunday mornings as, as times as such. That we get to be here and encourage one another. Now, it's not solitude, but it is a time to recharge to encourage and to spur each other on to, to fellowship with other believers. How often, and we don't need an answer to this, but I do want you to think about it. How often do you pray? How often do you spend in prayer? It's an interesting, interesting answer you're giving yourself right now. Um, if it's a lot, then excellent. If it's not very much, then you're maybe convincing yourself that that's okay. It, it, there has to be times of prayer. There has to be times of sharing with God. There has to be times of study. There has to be times when we open up God's word, apart from Sunday morning, to worship. To worship God, to open up and to study his word to give praise to him, to spend time in prayer, to charge ourselves to be steadfast and noble and to know what God has called us to and not just, not just to live the way that the world calls us to. We have to do these things because we've been called not to just live independently but to share the word of God. To share the word of God. What does your relationship with God look like? Do you have an answer to that? Now, if I, if I was to ask you what your relationship with your, uh, with your siblings is like, or with your parents is like, or with your grandparents, or with your children, you'd, you'd readily know what that was like, right? You'd be able to put into words, probably, uh, your experiences with uh, your family or with your friends and what your relationship was like. What is your relationship with God like? How do, you, how do you have this relationship with God? 
Do you understand that God desires for us to be in a close relationship with him? He desires for us to give ourselves over to him. He desires for us to live lives that are pleasing and holy, to live lives that are this sweet aroma before him. God is watching over us. He knows us. One of, the, one of the great deceptions in the world is that God doesn't exist. And that if he does, he must not care very much about us. And, and one of the reasons I think that, that obviously that deception is there is that the flip side of that coin then, if that is true, must also be true, is that uh, we don't have, really have an enemy. That the devil really isn't, isn't real. But our God is real. Our God does care about us. Our God is watching over us. Our God hears us when we cry. You think back into the Old Testament. The people were in Egypt. And it came a time when Pharaoh did no longer know the people. And what ended up happening to those who were the people of Israel that were living now in Egypt? They became what? They became slaves before Pharaoh. And they toiled and they worked and it became harder and harder and harder. And eventually what did the people do? They cried out to God, right? They cried out to God to help them. To bring them up out of Egypt. To rescue them. To save them from slavery. And there was this great outpouring, this great cry that went up to God from the people of Israel. And it tells us about God that, that he did what? That God heard their cry. And in from, uh, from an unusual place comes salvation. For Moses, who was no longer even in Egypt, Moses, who was uh, somewhat of an outcast at the time, murderer who had fled, is called back to lead the people out. Is God listening? Does God care about us as his people? You'd be hard-pressed to read through the New Testament and not know without a shadow of a doubt that God cares, that God listens, that God hears our prayers, that God hears when we cry out, that God hears when we lament, that God hears we give thanksgiving, that God knows us and wants us and desires for us to have a strong relationship with him. So what is your relationship with God like? Is it strong? Is it interactive? Do you, do you share with God? Do you have a care or a concern about, about being pleasing to God? About being holy? Do you understand that God is listening? When I was much younger, I was uh, into playing sports. I still like them. I'm just not very good at them anymore. Uh, but when I was younger, we used to play all the time, whether that was volleyball, basketball. Uh, one of the great things about being at Western was the gym was always open. 
so we would play before school lots of times we play at lunch lots of times we play after school then we'd go have supper then we'd come back and play more and we just played a lot of sports you get the idea at the same time I was also in high school and had uh, at various different times uh, an interest in a girl or two. And one of the laments was that I played too many sports. You cannot be a very good boyfriend and not be around very often, for all of you young men out there. And so one of the laments was you have to spend more time. Well, that was like poison to my ears. Unfortunately, and fortunately, all at the same time, God has called us to be his. How, how much time does that mean? Are we going to break it down and say, well, uh, that means I'll give, well, what's church here? 10 to 11, 15, that's an hour and a half. And then we stay for lunch, so that leads us into one. That, that's working on three hours. Then I visit for another 10 minutes afterwards. That's 3.15. That's, that's pretty good. I spent quite a bit of time with God this week. Maybe even, maybe even we add a little bit of time on there. You know, we do other things as well. I was, I was compassionate to someone who needed it for 45 minutes. I thought about praying for another half an hour. I actually did pray for another 10 minutes. And I say all that, not facetiously, though somewhat facetiously, to point out that the idea of more time is flawed. We should not be thinking, well, I have this amount of time for God. And the rest is what then? If we're thinking that I have this much time for God, and we're going to say, well, I need to spend more time with God, then what is the rest of the time? What category does it fall under? If the one category is with God, the other category then has to be what? Apart from God? Does that make sense to us? As Christians, we'll spend so much time with God and then the rest of the time kind of apart from God. We often think like that, though, don't we? That I'll give more time to being godly. I'll give more time to being a Christian. I'll give more time to being what God wants me to be. When that's not what God is calling us to. God has changed who we are. That is our relationship with God. We are now his children. We have gone from being slaves to sin to now being slaves to righteousness. It is by definition who we are. We are salt and we are light. We don't spend time being salt. We don't spend time being light. We don't spend time being Christian. As though we're little children who put on a cape and spend time being Superman. I'm glad someone enjoyed that. That was good. Uh, we don't spend time doing that. It is who we are. 
And so if we're thinking to ourselves, well, I'm going to spend more time being godly, I would appreciate that, that we would spend more time doing those things. We'd spend more time in prayer. We'll spend more time in study. That we'll spend more time, yeah, maybe being good or doing the things that God has called us to do. But by definition, it is an outpouring of who we should be and who we are because we have a relationship with God. So we'll ask again, what is your relationship with God like? What's it like? How do you view it? How do you, how do you interact with your God? Ultimately, all of this is leading somewhere. All of this is leading for us to be with God. As Jesus, in Matthew chapter 14, as Jesus goes out to, to see his disciples once again as he has sent them out on the boat, and he walks up to them by walking on the water. And they're afraid. In verse 27, Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. And come, he said. Then Peter does something absolutely crazy. Does he not? He steps out of a boat onto water. To be with Jesus. If it's you, tell me to come out and I will come out to you. And Jesus says, come. Peter then, it says in verse 29, got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. I have mentioned this to you before, and I will mention it again. I would love to know what that felt like. To walk on water. Was it hard, like ice? Was it kind of like jello? Was it like a waterbed? It don't matter. I just want to know. But the understanding that he could come out to Jesus is one of incredible faith, is it not? To be with God. And if we want to be with God, if we desire to be with God eternally, then we need to live with that same faith. The faith that would allow us to step out of a boat. Peter's not new to water. I mean, Peter's been a fisherman. He's been around water and boats his entire life. He knows you can't step out of a boat. And yet he steps out of this boat and walks on water. And then what happens? You know, we talk about this, this idea of focus, the idea of an eye test, this idea of understanding what God has called us to. And what happens? He's walking on water. I mean, just think about the, the, the miracle of that, that he steps out and he can actually walk on water. And then what does he see? He begins to see what? Instead of seeing Jesus, he begins to see the wind and the waves and all the things that stand in his way from actually walking on water. There will be tests to faith in the life we live. There are tests to faith in the life we live. There will be temptations galore. There will be wind and there will be waves. 
And if we take our eyes off of Jesus, if we no longer look at the narrow path and walk on that narrow path, then we will be swept away and we will begin to sink. Because what happens to Peter? He looks at the wind and the waves, and what happens? Verse 30, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Have you ever given much thought to that? Obviously we have, in the idea of him seeing the wind, seeing the waves. But in the beginning to sink part, have you ever jumped into a pool of water? Okay, how many haven't jumped into a pool of water? Anybody in this room haven't jumped into a pool of water? I would hazard a guess we probably all have. Did you begin to sink? Where you could stop and say, Lord, save me? So he begins to sink, like quicksand almost, it would seem like. He begins to sink where he realizes he is sinking, and he cries out to God, realizing his state. Lord, save me. His focus has gone back from the wind and the waves to what? His desire and need for God, right? He understands that now. He understands he has a need again for Jesus. And what happens? His focus uh, goes from that where he sees the wind and the waves where the focus goes back to being on, on him. And Jesus says, You have little faith, why did you doubt? But before that he did what? He reaches out his hand and catches him. Saves him. <laughs> there will be tests to our faith. What is our response when there is? When Jesus was tempted, what was his response? It is what? Written. It is written. This is what Jesus replied every time he was tempted. It is written. This is what God says. This is what God wants from me. Lord, I will do your will and nothing but. There will be wind and there will be waves. And there will be time for us to focus on God. To turn to God. To repent when we make mistakes. But always. Always to know that he is there to reach out to catch us. And to save us. I want to turn into 1 Corinthians. If you'd like to turn there and follow along, I would encourage you to do so. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. And I would like to read the first five verses as we close this morning. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except... Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on God's power. Let us rely on God always. Let us turn to him and live for him and know nothing except for Jesus, our Lord, and him crucified.